0: Now over to Pastor Steve.
1: We are in a series called King and Kingdom. It's not king, and it's not kingdom. It's king and kingdom. And we need to make sure that we understand that you cannot take the kingdom from the king, and you cannot take the king from the kingdom. You've got to properly place the king on the throne of your heart in order for him to establish the kingdom in your life. And you can't just go do kingdom stuff and not have reverence and awe, love for the king. This is one of those few places, you know, you can, in America, I pray that you understand the difference between being a patriot and being a fan of particular political leaders or so-called political leaders or fake ones who pretend to be however however you want to unravel that go ahead <clears throat> there is a difference between a pa- being a patriot and loving what the country is about what it was what it was formed for what the the establishment of the Republic was meant to represent. Many people don't know this, but this government is the only government that was established in the way that it was established under the principles and precepts that it was established upon by people who literally used the Scriptures and sermons to form the foundation of the country. A lot of people really honestly don't know that. And if you go to high school in Illinois... This year, they will on purpose tell you that that the opposite is true. That it was formed by a bunch of people that hated minorities and uh, were trying to enslave humanity and uh, a bunch of absolute, complete lies. It's called Critical Race Theory or 1619 Project or just demonic. You can can just paint with a broad brush and just call the whole thing demonic. And they would try to convince you that Our founding fathers did not have the heart and the inspiration that they had. But I'm here to tell you that it's documented, and I'll show you if you disagree with me, it's documented that they took the foundations of our nation from the Scriptures and sermons that were preached from the Scriptures. For example, we the people. Well, where's that at in the Scriptures? Have you ever heard of the Great Commission? They literally took the concept that Jesus established, which was, I have the name above every name. I have beaten hell, I have beaten sin, I have beaten the grave, I have gone up to heaven and been exalted, I have gone down to hell and been a victor, and I've come and I give you my name. So in my name, you the people, go establish my government. So the Founding Fathers said, hey, here's a great thing. How about we, the people, establish the government? Literally from the Great Commission. (laughs) And then we got a bunch of people that love power and money uh, more than the foundational principles of our country, and they are trying to rule and reign. But I have news for you. Their time is coming to an end very, very soon. Because we are in the great awakening. And of all the people that are going to be woke, the people that are telling you to be woke are going to be the most wokest. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, before I get too far off track. This is the Lord talking. The Lord. The King of the Kingdom. Someone you can trust understands what needs to be activated in our hearts, our minds, our lives. And he tells us to fear not. And I know that some people when they hear statements like that, well you just don't know what's going on in my life. I know. God was ignorant about things that were going to happen to you. You should probably inform him. You should pray and whine and complain in your prayer, and let him know all the things that he doesn't know. Um, when you're done, this scripture is still going to stand, and it's still going to say, "Fear not." You you can try to change God. <laughs> Sometimes I like to sit back and watch people do that. <laughs> I, many times I've sat in, uh, sat in like a counseling session or in my office or something with somebody, and, I, and they just go and go and go and go. And I, I think, Lord, they have been trying to use all of these excuses to change you all this time, and it's gotten them into my office. Like, thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to give them the same answer that Jesus gives them. On the cross, He finished everything that needed to be finished. And He gave us the answers to all, this, all the problems, all the situations that you'll ever run into. And He empowered you with all the grace and more than enough than you'll ever need of grace to accomplish what He calls you to accomplish. He gave you the love to make sure that you were secured in that grace. And then, just to make sure that some of us hard-headed folks, I said us, so maybe not all of you, but us, hard-headed folks, um, He gave us the Holy Spirit just to make sure we couldn't screw it up. So that when I get into certain situations and I'm dumbfounded about what to do, I can just pray in my angelic language, my heavenly language, and get it all sorted. And I, and I know that some folks are obviously so wise, so intelligent, that they don't need that heavenly language or that heavenly communication, so they don't have to pray in tongues or, or ask the Lord in His language about things. But I'm one of those folks that haven't got it all figured out, tend to be sometimes ignorant and so I have to pray in heavenly language because earth's language isn't doing it for me and so through the baptism of the Holy Spirit we have no excuse all right I got one amen on that it's all right the rest of you will catch up soon I have no excuse to not fear or to fear not no whatever the double negatives that makes that make sense This is me being a professional communicator. I'm gonna this little this little piece here, these next two words is kinda where I'm gonna be drilling in a little bit this morning. Little flock. And I know that that there's probably some folks that hear the Lord say something like that and they get a little insulted. Well, who you calling little flock? I ain't no sheep, I'm a lion. Okay, God bless you. You're a sheep. Or a goat. Lion's not an option. There's a lion on the inside of you. But you ain't him. <laughs> you got one that's right.
0: No, I'm a lion.
1: Okay. <laughs> buy you a box of animal crackers. <laughs> You're a sheep or a goat. And you can tell the difference because sheep say, Amen. And goats go, but, but, but. That's how you can tell. On the inside of you, if you're a little flock, a flock. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And his roar makes Satan wet his diapers over and over again. I want to highlight it, it says, Fear not, little flock. Not little Christian. A separated sheep is mutton. Anybody know what mutton is? If I can teach you all everything. A separated sheep is mutton. A meal. A flock is safe. If you're not little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you. Not sell you, not negotiate. Not write up a contract and if you keep your part, he'll keep his part. It's, it's his desire to just give it to you. It says in Romans chapter 8, it says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely with him give us all things? I've used that scripture to people, and they've literally argued with me. They've come to me like, I don't know if God wants to heal me or help in this situation. I'm like, and I quote that scripture, and they're saying, Yeah, but I don't know if God will heal me. I'm like, He's willing to put Jesus on the cross great, big, huge thing. Break the Trinity. Kill one-third of the Godhead. Send Him to hell. But you don't know if He'll deal with your headache. You don't know if He'll help you with your electric bill. Something is out of balance in the way that we think about these things. The carnal aspects of your life. Little itty-bitty things. Eternal life great big thing if he's willing to do the great big thing he's obviously willing to do the little thing one of the reasons that we mess this up is because we're the opposite sometimes we actually believe that, you're, that we're willing to go do the great big things for God but the little tiny things nah, somebody else take care of that oh there's trash in the yard at beloved church Arch. somebody should pick that up who do we pay to do that around here Man, we're out of toilet paper in the bathroom. Whoever's in charge of that in this church? Oh, will you go do this massive mission trip for me? Oh, yay, Lord. I will do anything for you. Will you pick up the trash in the yard? Are you crazy? I just got my nails done. (laughs) Lord, why would you even ask me? In Matthew chapter 11, the Lord gave us um, what I think is something that's very pertinent for this revelation of the king and the kingdom. He told us who the greatest person ever born of a woman was prior to the new birth. So the greatest human being ever born. And he specifically said, hey, what, what did you guys go out to look at? A reed shaken in the wind. Which is kind of the Lord saying, did you go watch a concert? Because some people do. Some people come to the things of God to be entertained. You can tell by their language whether they were entertained or not. Um, Their comments after certain things of God and certain things of the kingdom will let you know what they came anticipating. Well Steve's not very funny. It was it was too long or it was too short or Ryan repeated too many words or you can tell what people drill into based upon commentary and what their opinions are of things that happen in kingdom environments. If you remember the Lord was up praying and he said Father, glorify thy name. And the Father responded out of heaven with an audible voice. And he says, I not only have glorified it, but I will glorify it again. And it was an audible, earth-shaking voice of God. And there was a crowd there. And the crowd said, or it says in the Scriptures, that in the crowd, some said it thundered. So they heard it, Eh, but it was thunder. The audible voice of God, I want you to think about this. The audible voice of God came out of heaven in response to the Lord praying. And many in the crowd thought it thundered. And then other folks in the crowd didn't hear nothing. Didn't feel nothing. They were probably playing Candy Crush on their cell phones. (laughs) Or they were sleeping. People sleep all the time in the middle of kingdom stuff. And then there were other people that thought that it was an angel. So they were almost spiritual. (laughs) They were close. So I want you to get it like in a crowd... With the audible voice of God that was so loud that it shook the earth. A quarter of the people didn't hear it. A quarter of the people thought that it was thunder. A quarter of the people thought it was angels. A quarter of the people actually heard God's voice. And this is in Jesus' meetings. So I get it. You might say, well, Pastor Steve's not very anointed. If he was more anointed, I'd be more spiritual and we'd figure stuff out. But this was in Jesus' meetings. 75% of them couldn't hear the audible voice of God. (laughs) Jesus said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Did you go out and be entertained? Go watch the the wind blow over the, the beautiful prairie. He said, no. What did you go out to see? Someone clothed in beautiful raiment? said, no, those that are clothed with beautiful raiments live in palaces, mansions, Hollywood, who obviously is some of the most important people in, in many of our lives. He said, no, what you went and seen was the greatest man ever born of a woman who was clothed in camel hair. Who ate locust and honey. Ate bugs and wore camel hair. Jesus said the greatest person ever born of a woman was somebody that most of the folks in this room would wouldn't even look at twice if we walked by. And I know you guys are the spiritual ones, so maybe half of you would look twice. Here's where I'm going. The reason that he called us little flock is because he wants us to understand little. Because the Lord's perception of who we are is oftentimes way different than our perception and everybody else's perception. And until we get our understanding and the Father's understanding in alignment, we are going to be divided against Him. And by default, working against Him. Among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven... Is greater than him. And you might have heard other preachers say that this means that anybody born again is greater than John the Baptist. I don't necessarily agree with that. I believe there's a difference between seeing the kingdom and actually being in the kingdom. Jesus told us that in John chapter 3 that when you're born again, you see the kingdom. In other words, you get spiritual eyes. When you're born again, you get everything gets new, and so you get new eyes. You get new ears, you get a new heart. And so when you're born again, you get new eyes that can see the kingdom that you could not see before. It was impossible and you were incapable of seeing the kingdom. I've talked to people, this is one of the ways that I know not everybody that goes to church is born again. Because I've actually talked to people about the kingdom. Folks that have been in the church for years and years and years say, hey, you know, this concept of the kingdom, this and they are completely dumbfounded. Completely. They cannot see it. And you can do all the explanation you can. You can give them all the scriptures you want. You can debate until you pass out. But you cannot see what you cannot see. Being born again makes it possible for you to see the kingdom. And then Jesus goes on later in John chapter 3, and He says that when the Spirit of God overwhelms you, fills you, blows through your life, then you're able to enter into the kingdom. Has anybody ever considered, thought about, meditated on the fact that Jesus did not preach a sermon did not perform a miracle, didn't heal anybody, didn't do anything of any significance for 30 years. I've had people get mad at me and quit the church because I wouldn't put them in leadership after being at the church for three months. Jesus spent 30 years. Jesus. Jesus. who did not need his mind renewed. <laughs> uh, are you following me on this? He, he was born, born again. He didn't need his mind renewed. He didn't learn a bunch of bad stuff for 15 years and then spend 15 years unlearning. 30 years in perfect communion with the Father. And he still was not released to do a single Kingdom thing. And then, finally, gets released by the Father. And goes to the crazy camel hair, bug-eating, honey-sucking preacher that everybody didn't know what to do with him, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist baptizes him, and then the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. And you would think, he would have like floated out of the water in like a yoga sitting style, and like, let me tell you everything there is to know, because I spent 30 years with the God, and now i got the Holy Spirit, and wah! No! He gets the extreme luxury of going out into the desert with no food, no water, and gets (laughs) tempted by the devil for 40 days. Yay! Why? Because he still had to operate in this new place of his life through the Holy Spirit and had to learn how to do that. So 30 years of nothing and then 40 days of extreme temptation more than anybody in this world room would ever survive. Just to be qualified to start ministry as the Son of God. And you're going to get it in four sermons? Come on. John the Baptist, same thing. He spent 30 years with the Essenes, living as a Nazarite. They were the most extreme of the extremes. And spent six months in ministry. Six months. Spent 30 years in complete obscurity. And six months in ministry. And Jesus called him the greatest person ever. Born of a womb. The Lord measures success way, way, way different than Hollywood does. Than your self-help books do. The next verse says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. I'm going to read this in the Berean. So listen, please. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence. And the violent lay claim. To it, So there's, there's been this, this violent activity that has taken place. Now, from the days of John the Baptist means pre-new birth. So everything before the new birth were the days of John the Baptist. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. So he's talking about all the days of the prophets. And so, in the days prior to the new birth, that we all become a royal priesthood, the kingdom of God was violently under attack and was violently obtained. How is it now? By rest. The kingdom has been already purchased, and it's your Father's good pleasure to give it to you. It's not about violence anymore. Now, I will say this. There is a principle that there are times that you're going to have to get violent against the enemy who's trying to come in and steal things from you. I completely, completely believe that. But for us to walk around in this militaristic mindset, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, thinking that we need to violently take the kingdom, you are working against your king. The enemy is the, the one with the violent streak, not your king. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16 says that God is love. He doesn't have love. He doesn't offer love. He is love. If God had a DNA, if there was a molecular makeup of God, it would be love. It wouldn't be justice. It wouldn't be power. It would be love. This is why some folks really have a skewed understanding and revelation of God. Because they just don't get this really deep revelatory truth. God is love. To know Him... Is to experience Him in love. To be known of Him is to allow Him to experience you in love. From that, all other things will flow. Holiness will flow. Uh, justice will flow. Uh, passion, courage, boldness. All those other amazing characteristics of people of God will flow from that. But it all starts there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't love you because you were lovely. He loved the world. You were an enemy to Him. You, in fact, you were a greater enemy than Satan. He had Satan under control. Not one time did God ever be like, oh man, Satan's loose. Dang it! I made a mistake. The Gospel wasn't about kicking Satan's tail. The good news of Jesus Christ's coming was to get you. Yeah. You were the problem.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you can take that any way you want to take that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna to go to Second Kings and I wanna talk about literally one of my favorite people in all of Old Testament scripture. And I'll guarantee you, I'm probably the only person in the room that can say that. One of my favorite people in all Old Testament Scripture, and they have no name. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1, and I'm going to use the ESV so you guys don't get too King james Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Great man, high favor. The Bible does not throw adjectives around just to be funsies. God wasn't competing with Shakespeare to try to be eloquent and say things spectacularly. When the Lord uses adjectives, you bet your dollar those adjectives mean something. So when the Bible says that he was a great man, and he had high favor? That's exactly what that means. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. That is one of the most quandary statements that you'll ever read in a Bible. I don't have time to untap it, but I want you to think about the fact that an enemy, the enemy of the nation of Israel was empowered by God to be victorious. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. <laughs> Everybody has a butt. I'm going to let that. I don't care who you are in this room. I don't care how awesome you are. I don't care how many duck face selfies you've taken. I don't care how much money you got. You got a butt. Everybody's got a butt. Some of us got bigger butts than others, but we all got a butt. His butt was pretty big, his butt was leper. And if you remember, leper was, uh, was a curse in multiple ways in this time. It was a horrendously debilitating disease that killed you eventually. It deadened all the nerves in all of your body so that your body literally fell off in chunks. And on top of it, It was congruent with the philosophy that you got it because you were cursed by God. That's why they separated the lepers in the leper colonies to keep them away from all of the righteous people. High favor. Great man. Valiant. Successful. Even empowered by God to do incredible things. But... Verse 2 Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife little little flock little girl Little in the Hebrew is like guitar I don't I don't, don't quote me on stuff ask Dr. Benjamin next time you see him. Uh, guitar, Catan, something like that. Here's the definition. Small. Young. Unimportant. Weak. Insignificant. Young. Weak. Small, insignificant. Fear not, insignificant flock. Well, that's not me. Of all the people in the kingdom, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. God bless you. Remember, Jesus said that the one that's on the bottom of the bottom, they're the ones that are taken to the top. This girl was so far on the bottom, she didn't even have a name in Scripture. She was little girl. Little girl. One of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. And she was little girl. Insignificant girl. Which is twice insignificant. Because girls in the Old Testament, not super awesome people. And Young. So this is like three times insignificant. Because she's a kid. Nobody gives a rip what a kid has to say. She's a girl. And girls smell. Or wait, that's boys. (laughs) And she's little. Insignificant. Small. Weak. Everything is literally going against her. And if you're picking up on this, she was taken by force. This is how the kingdom worked back then. By force, she was taken from her land. So now she's a minority. She's a slave. She's insignificant. She's young. And she's a girl. I'm going to take you a little bit deeper and I'm going to try to do this in a way that I can keep this PG. In Jesus' name. She was taken in a raid by a godless nation. Her parents were probably killed. I'm reading a little bit into this, but I want you to follow me because I want you to get this. Her parents were likely killed, probably in front of her, because that's what you did to make sure that you created the right amount of fear in order for you to completely dominate a person that you have just stolen and placed into slavery. She was most likely uh, mistreated... All of you adults can probably find, she was probably mistreated by however many soldiers wanted to. However many times they wanted to. And she was likely 13 or 14. Because that's just how it worked back then. And I know you're thinking, oh, I mean, you're like painting a terrible picture. I could be potentially painting it prettier than it was. They might have tortured her. They might have tortured her parents in front of her. You didn't go marauding on a Tuesday because you didn't want to have a picnic. You on purpose did this. This is terrorism. This is Old Testament terrorism. Where do you think the terrorists learned how to do stuff? It was here. And on top of it, these ratings were done by the Syrians regularly. So we got to assume that this little girl lived in some kind of a border area to Syria and she would hear about these raids all the time so she probably grew up hearing about these raids. She might have even lost friends. Maybe distant family members. She's probably heard some of the stories of things that happened to other people. And you know, as a little girl, you're already... I mean, I know this personally. You've already got some, especially 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, you've already got your hands full. Add to it the fact that you live in consistent, constant fear by what the neighboring nation might do to you. Your family. Your future. And then it happens. And who knows what she went through. And I'm on purpose painting this this way, so you get this. This wasn't some little princess in her little purple dress, and the bad guys came over and said, Hey, honey, you want to come live with us? And she said, Yay! This was a terrible, terrible... You could not make this movie because it would be so... that it would not be able to be released. And this little girl is either taken by Naaman and his army or by some other army in Syria and forced into slavery. Now, if she was taken by Naaman's army, that's one thing. If she was taken by somebody else that Naaman eventually had control over, that means she went to a slavery auction where she, as a 13-year-old girl, was stripped naked and placed on the block like a piece of cattle. And all of the sickest, grossest people that you could imagine would come up and poke her and prod her and do stuff to find out if she was going to be worth their 50 cents. Let me say this, there's probably not a person in this room that would have survived an hour of what she survived for weeks and months and years. Imagine how bitter. How much hatred.
0: The anger that had to
1: have been birthed in her. And then on top of it, she's not born again, y'all. There's no Jesus. This is pre-Jesus. There's no born again. There's no Spirit of God. She's a regular person. Jeremiah says, her heart is desperately wicked and cannot be fixed. Prior to the new birth, you could not get a new heart. There was no new hearts. Whatever happened to you, you carried with you. The best you could hope for is that the priest in Jerusalem would kill some goat or some sheep. And sprinkle blood on some religious place, and maybe God wouldn't kill you. That's the best you can hope for. She didn't have Jesus, who loved her. She didn't know that God was a God of love, to the degree that everybody in this room knew. She didn't know the mercy of God the way like everybody in this room could know it. She didn't know the indwelling presence of the peace of God. She could not pray in the Spirit to get her through maybe something that some sicko was doing to her. And at the end of all of that, she got the high honor of being the slave of Naaman's wife. So let me show you all of that. Anger, the hatred, the vitriol, the vengefulness that was in her. That she was justified to have. If anybody's been justified to be angry, to live a life with anchors and and weights, it had to be her. She couldn't be born again and separated from her past. She probably lived these thoughts actively. Maybe this was what she dreamed about every night, was being victimized by some sicko. Watching her mommy and her daddy killed in front of her when she's a little girl. Her innocence stolen. For no reason other than some other country just wanting to flex their terrorist muscles. Had to be darkness from the bottom of her feet. To the top of her head, looking for every opportunity to kill, to get revenge on the people that have done terrible, terrible things to her. Verse 3. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. After all that, he decided to love. Not just love, not just love the ones that were nice to her. She loved. forgave, had mercy in her heart, for potentially the ones who victimized her, her captors, her slave masters. After going through all that, that nobody in this room has a story that you could equate to. Nobody. I don't care who you are. You did not go through what she went through. And at the end of all that, she loved her mistress and she loved her master. 14 year old girl. There are people in this room that have been a Christian, knowing the infinite and eternal forgiveness of God that was shed abroad in your heart. The love of God that stained that cross red with blood. And you've been 14 years with those revelations. And you can't even love your spouse. Your neighbor. Because their dog pooped in your yard. She loved her mistress. And her master. She was not born again. of my favorite people in all the Old Testament. Insignificant. Nameless. And changed the world through humility. Through love. Through grace. She violently through love. Violently through mercy and violently, through forgiveness, change the world. Would that my Lord were with the prophet. This is the only sentence that we know that this insignificant little girl uttered in all of Scripture. And it tells us, masses of pieces of information about her heart. She called him Lord. In the Hebrew, this is the word Adonai. This word is actually used as Lord God. She didn't use some slang. She didn't use some slur. She gave him reverence. When we were at uh, at family camp, um, I had the honor—literally the honor—I must have—I must have been working work, working really, really hard to convince my wife that I was I was of that high quality of honor because she allowed me for the first time ever to minister to the ladies. I've been working at it for—I mean. However many, we've been married 26 years and I finally convinced her that I was anointed enough to talk to her ladies because she, she, she keeps that guarded, very, very guarded. So the fact that I got in there is probably one of the greatest trophies I've ever won. And when I was talking to the ladies, I, I, I use these kind of contexts for them to understand. Some of the most important and powerful people in all the scriptures were, A, gals, and B, completely insignificant people. Completely insignificant people, except in the heart and the eyes of God. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, we know the story of two midwives. And they're... In, Their entire scriptural account was the fact that they literally defied the Pharaoh, defied the government, and still helped the Hebrew women give birth to their children to preserve a generation. Part of that generation that was preserved was Moses. If it wasn't for Moses, there'd be no Jesus. Two midwives who defied the government. Man, I hope you get that. And nobody in here probably knows their names. Raise your hand if you know who Jochebed was, and you're not in my meeting in family camp. Jochebed? Anybody? No, the reason you don't know who Jochebed is, is because it's another insignificant person. Jochebed was Moses' mama. And I could could spend the next hour telling you the amazing things that Jochebed did, and nobody in here even knew her name. Jacob had preserved a generation and preserved a nation almost single-handedly. Significance in the kingdom is so much different than significance in this world. In fact, it's so much different that I this is one of the things that I literally shy away from and and you guys would know because there's been times that that you guys, under the unction of whatever, have like applauded me or, or been nice to me publicly. <laughs> it's even hard to talk about, and it's so awkward for me. I I literally don't want it, and I know you. Times that I've gotten standing ovations, place I'm like, please sit down, because I, I it's so contrary to me because I I want the Father. To applaud me, not like applaud but I want the I all I want to do is please him. I appreciate the fact that that folks love me and 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 honor me and thank me for things that I get that, I get that. But it, it really zero in my life I want any of that. What I want is to know that I'm pleasing the Father, that in me and in the things that I do, in the things that I say, that He is well pleased. And it's because I've spent a lot of my my Christian life studying these kind of things, these obscure, these nobodies, these insignificant folks. Because if you go through the Scripture, it tends to be the rich, the famous, and the significant people that have all the terrible problems. David was awesome until he was king. Right? Playing with sheep. Killing bears and lions. Playing on his harp. woo Gets to be king. Murder. Adultery. Starts a civil war. <laughs> Solomon. Before he's king. Like he's so concerned about God and so concerned about God's heart that he literally has a vision and God comes to him and says, I will give you anything you want. And so many folks in Christianity are so carnal that they're like, I wish God would come and do that. He did. His name is Jesus. God shows up to Solomon and says, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon says, oh, if I could just lead your people if I was just smart enough to lead your people well, if I could just bless your people. And then he gets all the wisdom, all the wealth, all the everything, and he's like, okay, well, let's see. I'll take a thousand wives, and then I'll worship a hundred gods. Naaman. Honor. Favor. High favor. Powerful man! But it's these insignificant people, it's these humble people that just have deep profound relationships with God. It's this little girl it's this insignificant little girl who's been traumatized victimized she didn't even do anything wrong Her parents were probably awesome, loving, amazing parents. I know they were at least good, godly parents because they raised her to have faith. So she probably had this beautiful, godly home with these loving parents. And everything changes in a minute. Because some sicko And some terrorist organization comes in and steals everything good from her by violent force and destroys her innocence and thrusts her into a living hell. And in that, she decides to love and to honor and to serve those that God has put her in front of. and says one sentence in the whole Bible. Oh, mistress, if my Lord, Adonai, Naaman, if He was just in Israel, there's a prophet in Israel that would heal him of his leprosy. I just want my master to be healed. I want him to have a better life. So much so that she probably took a chance by even talking to her mistress. Slaves don't talk to their slave masters. They serve and shut up. And she broke that code so she could declare her faith that the master who she loves... Could potentially get healed if he just went to the prophet. Faith. This little girl has more faith. A 14 year old victimized slave girl has more faith than 90% of the body of Christ. She was willing to put her life on the line. To tell her mistress about the prophet that her mommy and her daddy, who probably were killed in front of her, told her about. Who she heard the stories about. Didn't even have a scripture to stand on. She just had faith in her heart. That if my master could just get to him, maybe he could get cured. What's the end result here? What's the play? So your master loses his leprosy? So now he's more virile? So he can come back and do even more terrible things? She actually cared more about him than her. More about her slave master than her own life. This is godly. God cared more about you while you were his enemy. Then he cared about him. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Now, what you're missing here is that insignificant little girl puts herself on the line to say this one thing to her mistress. And her mistress believed her. Which means that this little girl had more character, more honor, more integrity than I would say most people that I know have. The slave master's wife. Why would the slave master's wife believe a slave? This means she must have proven herself and showed herself authentic of great character and great integrity. And this mistress, the slave master's wife, was so convinced by this that she actually broke tradition and went to her husband to tell her what the weird slave from the other country who has those other gods said could happen. And must have been so convincing to Naaman that Naaman believed her. Naaman believed her so much that Naaman went to the king of all of Syria and told the king of all of Syria what his wife was told by the little insignificant slave girl. And the king was convinced. Dear Jesus, we can't even get people to come to church to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. This is four layers deep of hearing maybe you can go get cured, and they had more faith. I tell you by his stripes you are healed. People say, well, I don't feel like it. Here's a guy with leprosy who gets his second, third, fourth generation knowledge and is so convinced, is willing to walk away from everything and go into the enemy's country to go see if he could just find some healing. Let me say this. One of the reasons that some people maintain their sicknesses, for, especially for a long time, is because they're just not willing to do what it takes to be healed. Here's a guy that didn't even have a promise in the Bible, didn't have a cross, didn't have a Jesus, didn't have stripes, and was willing to literally go into enemy territory based upon the testimony of an insignificant slave girl. I tell you that Jesus took stripes on his back and the Bible says at least in ten places that you're healed because of what he's done. at the finished work of the cross. And most people say, well, I don't feel like it. Hey, if you'll do this, you'll manifest your healing. That's a lot of work, preacher. It's, it's just a lot easier to eat Doritos and watch TV. Okay. Then do that. But don't blame God. For you not manifest in healing. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the little insignificant girl from the land of Israel, the place that we terrorize. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Let me help you here. $6 million. $6 million. $6 million. You talk about offering at a church and Christians roll their eyes at you. Here's a guy that worships a demon god who gets a testimony from a little insignificant slave girl and gathers up six million dollars. <laughs> now you know why he got healed. Now you know why things manifested in his life that maybe you're believing for, and why did Naaman get it, and I didn't get it. You're seeing behind the curtain. This, this is showing the authenticity The reality of people who actually operate in faith instead of talking about it. I'm going to synopsize the rest of the story. And I'm going to try to do it quick. In Jesus' name. Amen. So... Naaman goes with his horses and his chariots and his six million dollars. And he goes into the, he goes into Israel, enemy territory, and he goes to the king with the letter from the king of Syria. He says, hey, um, king of Syria sent me over here to get healed. Gives him the letter. And the king of Israel, rightfully so, says, what the heck? Hey, God! What? He's literally doing this to start a fight. Makes sense, because your enemy says, hey, heal my general or else. <laughs> And so the king of Israel rents his clothes and has like this basically temper tantrum. And the prophet Elisha hears about the temper tantrum and writes to him and says, Hey, why are you throwing temper tantrum? And he says, let, let this dude come to me. I'll take care of it. So that they will know, actually he says, so that you will know there's a prophet in Israel. So get this, Naaman, who worships demon gods in another nation, believes more in the God of Israel than the King of Israel. This would be like oftentimes when I go minister in places when there are unbelievers that come. Or let let me use this. So if I go and, uh, Bob will confirm this, if we go to Pakistan into a Muslim nation and preach on healing, 95% of the people receive healing. Yep. I go to a church in America and preach on healing, 5% receive healing. Unbelievers are more likely to believe in God than believers. You can get mad at me, you can, get, you can throw stuff, you can send me an email. It doesn't change it, I'm just telling you the facts. The king of Syria, the leprous general of Syria, who would go terrorize the country, had more faith in God because of the witness of a little slave girl than the king of Israel who had the Torah and the history of the nation of Israel with the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that made the walls of Jericho fall down, the God that turned the sun back in the sky 15 degrees, all this amazing stuff that the God that he knows did, and the guy from the other nation with leprosy comes over with $6 million and a word from the Lord through an insignificant little slave girl. And the prophet has to say, well, he's come so that I can make sure that you know there's a prophet. They know you don't. So Naaman goes to Elisha's house, and you can imagine—I mean, he rolled. I mean, you're carrying six million dollars. You got chariots. You got horses. You got—I mean, Na- Naaman didn't show up in a UGO with a ball cap on. When Naaman showed up, Naaman showed up. They probably heard him coming for miles, and he shows up. And Elisha, God bless him. Elisha doesn't even want to leave the house. I don't know if the coffee was good that morning or whatever. But he sends his servant, most likely Gehazi, he says, Hey, go out there and tell him, go down to Jordan and uh, dip seven times. And I could imagine Gehazi, you want me to go out and tell him that he needs to go into the sewer, because that's what the Jordan was. The sewer. You want me to go tell this guy (laughs) to go get in the sewer. Seven times. You 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 want me? This, this this is why I'm your servant, huh? Okay, I gotcha. How much does this job pay? <laughs> now I want you to I want to do a little contradiction here. What's the difference between these two servants? You got Naaman's wife's servant, and now you got the prophet's servant. So the servant goes out and he says, uh, <laughs> "Hey." Elisha sends greetings. Uh, go in the sewer and take seven baths. And Naaman, rightfully so, gets a little bit perturbed. In fact, the Bible says that he gets angry. He is wroth in the King James. And he's stomping and throwing a fit. This is how most believers are. When you tell them they need to do a few things in their lives, change a few things in their lives, and, and, and actually incorporate some of, the, some of the Word of God in the action. I'm not going to do all that. You want me to read my Bible? Stupid legalistic preacher. Just get me healed. Okay. Throws a temper tantrum. wonder where he learned that from. And then his servants... Are you picking up on the servant thing? His servant said, hey, uh, Lord, not to interrupt the kicking and screaming, but he asked you to go dip in the water seven times. It's actually not a big deal. Like, worst case, you go dip in the water seven times. You get wet. Best case is, he's the prophet. What we came here to get, we get. I'm telling you, this is amazing logic. This is absolutely amazing logic that most believers will never incorporate. In fact, in the very next chapter, there's a story about uh, three leprous guys sitting outside this, the uh, capital, the Samaria, and the reason they're outside is because they were not allowed to be in the city because they got leprosy. But in the city, the whole city is being sieged, and it's so bad in the city that they're literally cutting up their children and eating them. That's how bad it is in the city. They're outside the city. They can't go into the city because they got leprosy, so if they go into the city, they'll get killed. And they're surrounded by the Sumerian army, and so if they go into the army, they get killed. If they go into the city, they get killed. And so they finally say, "Do you know what?" We're going to die one way or another. This is great logic. And so they go into the Sumerian army and they find out that the army's gone because God ran them off and they're eaten and they literally get rich in a second. This is exactly the same thing that the servants told Naaman. Like, hey, what's the worst case? You get wet. Like what? In other words, hey, quit whining. Go do the easy thing. Maybe it'll work. So he's like, Ugh, fine. And he goes and does it. What do you think happened? He got healed. He got healed. I know, it should be way harder. It, I know, because you're religious. you got to make it hard. It can't be easy. It can't just be simple obedience and faith. It, that's never going to be the way. It's got to be all this other stuff. you got to jump through 4,000 hoops because God loves to watch you dance around jumping through hoops. Because he's a sycophant. Either that, or he just needs simple faith and obedience. Just saying. So then he goes back, and this wrecks Naaman. Wrecks him. He shows up in this arrogance, and this... Pomp and circumstance, probably with this like, hey, I'm here with my six million dollars and my chariots and da da, da da. And uh Elisha wouldn't even take his money. He didn't want nothing to do with any of it. Elisha was a problem. he was a man of God. It's like this is what God said, that's it. Now I'll say this, most preachers I know. This is not how they'd operate. Six million Is that in small bills? (laughs) Can you write that in a check so I don't have to pay the online fees? He said, I don't want your money. I'm just telling you there's a prophet in Israel, and God's greater than leprosy. Go wash in the toilet. So now Naaman comes back. Everything is different for Naaman. Naaman comes back. He's humbled. He is humbled. He doesn't show up with pop and circumstance. It says that he stood in front of Elijah's house. So now he's just a man. Now he he went from super dude to regular dude because the power, the love, the goodness, the, the, the promise of God was activated in his life. This is how you know when someone truly, truly, truly has had an experience with God. Humility. So he tries to convince Elisha this time to take the gift. He literally says, this is a gift. The first time he brought the $6 million, it was payment. It was convincing. That's why Elisha wouldn't take it. So the second time he shows up completely humbled, completely healed, and offers it as a gift. in gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done for him. But Elisha didn't change. He didn't want any of it. He wasn't taking it out as a bribe. And he wasn't taking it as a gift or a payment. He wasn't taking it either way. His God was going to uh, provide for him. So they take off. And Gehazi, the servant, says, yeah, a lot of money out there. And so he conjures up this plan to go out and tell Naaman this lie and this story about stuff. And so uh, Gehazi, the servant... This is the stories of the servants. The servant connives out of Naaman basically a hundred grand. And he comes back with his hundred grand, stashes it at his house, so that Elisha wouldn't figure it out. I cannot tell you how humorous this is, because I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come and tell me something, and by the Spirit of God, God's already told me things going on in their life, and they'll just make up these stories. And so Gehazi, I stand in front of Elisha. Oh, wow. You... And Elisha says, Hey, where have you been? He's like, oh, I, I didn't go anywhere. I was just chilling by the fireplace, drinking coffee. And he's like, Ah, well, here's the thing. My spirit actually went with you when you went to Naaman and he got the hundred grand and then you went and stashed it at your house. So where have you been? <gasps> oh, prophet. So then, uh, Elisha says to Gehazi, hey, because you did this thing, you actually get what you sowed into. And so you get Naaman's leprosy. Not only that, but now you get it into your generation. And so Gehazi made him and his whole family sick. There's a terrible, terrible story, but also a reality there. So then we go into 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm going to skip over the floating axe head. If you don't know that story, you should read that. And right below that, it says that the Syrian army was going and still doing these raids. What kind of raids? The raids where the little girl got raided and stolen. And after, the, after they were doing all these things... Um, they decided to finally uh, go after the king and try to just get rid of Israel altogether. And so they were setting up ambushes for the king of Israel. And Elisha was telling the king of Israel where they were setting the ambushes. By the Spirit. Because he's a prophet, remember? There's a real prophet. And so the king of Israel was avoiding all these ambushes. And so the king of Syria got super mad and he's like... Who is the traitor? Who's telling the king of Israel what we're doing? There's got to be a traitor here. Don't you know Naaman was a little bit concerned? Because he just had this amazing experience with healing and with the prophet in Israel. Of all the people that potentially could be a traitor, it's probably the guy that went to the traitor nation and got healed. And so Naaman is probably like, hey, 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 not me. And so then someone finally lets Naaman off the hook and says, Look, nobody's a traitor king. It's that stinking prophet. He tells the king everything we're doing. And so the king says, Get him! And so they go down to Dothan. They surround Dothan, which is where Elisha lives. And Elisha uh, is chilling in the bedroom. And then his servant wakes up early because that's what servants do. Remember, this is the servant with leprosy. Servant wakes up, makes a fresh pot of coffee, goes out, stands on the porch, and he's enjoying the beautiful sunrise and realizes it's not the sunrise, it's all of the sun shining off of all the armor of all the surrounding army that have come to get his master. <laughs> the army. And so Gehazi, in the King James, he, he says, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Which is King James for, Ah! <laughs> And Elisha says, dude, chill. I'm paraphrasing. Chill. They that be with us are more than they that be with them.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And don't you know, gay guy is like, you need some coffee. And then Elisha says, ugh. Open the unspiritual guy's eyes. And so God opens his eyes, and then he sees the army of God surrounding Dothan that were surrounding the army that was surrounding them. And then Gehazi goes, all right. And so then Elisha does this other thing. He says, uh, Lord, make them go blind. And so they all go blind. And then Gehazi and Elisha, two go out and take an entire army captive. And they say, hey, everybody, grab everybody's hands. You guys went to the wrong city. <laughs> Sorry, you got misdirected. So take everybody's hands and follow me. And they walk the entire army into Israel, into the city of Samaria, close the gates, and then, Elisha. this is so... If you cannot see the humor in the Scriptures, you are not reading the Bible right. And then Gehazi says, Okay, Lord, open your eyes. And so they're all like, Ah! And they're like, What the heck? And they're surrounded in the center of Samaria by the Israeli army. And so then the Israeli king says, Hey, what are we supposed to do with them? Should I kill them? And he says it twice. My father, shall I kill them? My father, shall I kill them? Talking to the prophet that he didn't know was a prophet that did the cool thing. Now twice. And he says, No! You do not understand the heart and the nature of God. Feed them. Give them water. Bless them. Show them grace. Show them mercy. Show them love. And then let them go home. Where, where did this come from? Insignificant little slave girl. Insignificant little slave girl whose insignificant little slave ways affected a mistress, who affected Naaman, who affected Syria, who affected Israel, who affected the heart of the prophet, who affected Syria, who then stopped an entire war. And the last verse of this story is, and the Syrian army... In verse 23 of 2 Kings says, So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Insignificant little slave girl protected every other little 14-year-old girl in Israel for generations. From love, grace, mercy. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. This insignificant, little, weak, young girl violently took over two kingdoms through love, grace, and mercy. I'll leave you with a verse. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 40, it says, He that receives you receives me. This is Jesus. He that receives me receives him that sent me. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, truly I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Jesus is saying a cup of cold water, as something as insignificant as a cup of cold water, done. In his name, his nature, his character, his heart, something as small as that can change the world. Something as small as a little slave girl victimized and tortured, who forgives and loves her masters, can change two nations. A cup of cold water in the name of the Lord Jesus. Most of you know Cinderella, and I'm only saying this because she's not here. She would... Be messed up if she knew I was doing this. Cinderella has been with us since like the start of the church. She was the only non-castle that came to the first service besides four people from the bar who may or may not have been hungover. Our first service was 11 castles or castle-ish people, four people from the bar and Cinderella. First service, beloved church. And Cindy has gone through all kinds of stuff in the last nine and a half years. And it's one of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet, ever. And when we were having Rugged in the Barn a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my little drum cage in my drum prison love you behind my pexagas with no moving air in a very warm barn I'm already kind of a warm sweatyish kind of guy playing the drums with all my heart dripping and Cindy stopped multiple times pastor you need some water you need more water pastor you need water Cindy is going to do incredible things for the kingdom of God, and has already, because of that, because of the little, tiny, small things. There are people in this room that are believing God to do big things for millions of dollars and change millions of souls and da-da-da-da, and we have a church right now that doesn't have enough nursery workers. You can't change a diaper for Jesus, but you want to win a million souls and get a million dollars for Jesus. First you do the cup of cold water. Then you get to tell Naaman to dip into Jordan seven times. It's not the other way around. You want to do significant things for God? Understand the insignificant things that he's offering you now you're not going to be faithful with a $20 bill in your pocket, you're not going to be faithful with a million. I promise you. I promise you. I need to be done. You guys are giving me that look. So please rise.